Curiosity is contagious. It keeps life interesting. It helps add meaning. And it's a marvelous part of who we are. There is a story behind everything. Professionally, I don't think that curiosity is bad. Personally, curiosity can be horrible. So it is that curiosity to say, okay, in the midst of any experience, what is this? What is this? What is this? This is Choose to be Curious. You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. We're celebrating an anniversary today. One year ago, I began this whole radio adventure with Reveille from Fort Myer and this introduction. So you found your way to a show all about curiosity, but what does that mean? And why choose to be curious? We're all born curious, after all, but at some point we seem to get less curious. So my question is how to push back against that and reclaim some of our native curiosity. It was fun to be curious as a kid, remember? So how do we flex those curiosity muscles again, if you will, and make a choice, as we do with eating well or exercise, to get stronger at being curious? And it's a choice because something happens and we're angry or confused or uncertain, And we can get mad or defensive or act like we already know the answer, faking it till we make it, or we can choose to be curious and just try to understand better. We're in a new place or the same old place, and we can be on autopilot, or we can slow down, pay attention, and be curious about what's going on around us. We're with new people or we're with people we've been around for years, and we can assume we already know exactly what they're thinking and how they'll react. Or we can choose to be curious and ask. S. Leonard Rubinstein, who was a writer and teacher, once described curiosity as, quote, a willing, a proud, an eager confession of ignorance. And that's what I'm going for. And that's what we've been doing. Paying attention to the Arlington soundscape and exploring everything from Empathy and creativity, design thinking, news literacy, immigration, evaluative thinking, trauma, conflict resolution, adolescence, early childhood leadership, and a whole lot more. And I knew I was on to something when Kelly Faulkner, the director of polar research at the National Science Foundation, said, You surprise me, actually, with these interviews you've done because I really, scientists don't really have the lock on curiosity. Indeed not. We've had incredible wisdom from teachers, journalists, a Buddhist priest, a musician, a police detective, a neuroanatomist, a doctor of narrative medicine, and a disability advocate. So many memorable moments in one little year. Too many to count, really. Like when Tom King, a former CIA counterterrorism operative turned comic book writer, blew me away with his take on curiosity and his craft. Like, writing is basically, you know, weaponized empathy. It's, it's just like trying to get into other people's Ooh. heads, right? I mean, curiosity is sort of the start of everything, because once you're curious about someone, then, then you get to know them, then you get to find their humanity. When we talked about body awareness, yoga instructor Jen Seff offered a mindfulness exercise I use all the time. I'll say five, five, five. You know, so what's five, five, five? Five, five, five. <laughs> Tell me the first five things you see right now. What are the first five things you feel and then the first five things you hear? It's an easy thing to then just draw you back into this present world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
and gender identity advocate Evie Priestman gave me a kind of personal anthem. Being curious may not lead to one exact answer, and that if you think you've gotten somewhere but then choose to be curious again, it's okay to be curious again. Certain themes kept coming up. Jesse Robinson and I stumbled on one in our conversation about improv theater. I like the emphasis on partnership. It's one of the biggest things we used to do before Mason Improv shows is that we would uh, pat each other on the back before we go on stage and say, I got your back. And that's one of the biggest things in improv. You have to be with them, not against them or for yourself on the stage because it's not going to work out well. Yeah, trust. It came up in the first conversation with Michaela Pond about curiosity and learning And most recently with Monique Brown as we felt our way around curiosity and challenging racism. It was embedded in the discussion with teacher Patricia Hunt about news literacy and a a huge component in the episode with Elizabeth Jones from OAR about trauma and supporting the transition from incarceration to community. In our most popular program to date, Scott Nickham nailed it in our exploration of curiosity and leadership the root word, the Latin derivation of the word curious is means to care. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a big link to trust building in our relationships. The act of asking a question out of care and out of truly seeking to understand the other is something that, again, is becoming rare because we're usually in a transactional mode to look for some key data point. Uh-huh. But really seeking to understand things like how is that impacting you? Um, What are your concerns about that? What do you think could be better? Those questions feel so different in kind as as much as they feel like slightly different worded questions than we might normally Mm -hmm. ask. But Mm -hmm. there's something about a sense of care that comes out of those questions because the motive for asking it is the focus on the other person, which is, I think, a key tenant to building trust. So it made perfect sense to me to mark this anniversary by addressing a theme from the year with a star from the year, and I've asked Scott Nickham to come back for more. Scott focuses on culture and engagement at CSRA, but today he's my trust buddy. Welcome back, Scott. Lynn, thanks for having me back. I'm humbled and flattered to be asked and invited back to join you. Oh, it's such a pleasure. And I wanted to start where we left off last time. Tell me more about your thinking on curiosity and asking questions out of care and what that does for building trust. Sure. I appreciate that we paused on that and spent some time exploring it together. And the chance to come back and think about it some more is really great for me. I, when I think about the, the chance to get to that point to even ask a question out of care, it sounds at that point like it's just wording the question differently, but I think there's something deeper within the individual that has to be uh, oriented towards the other person f- way way further upstream. There's a chance to say from a curious perspective, I've been preparing for this conversation or meeting, and I may have an agenda or topics to cover, but almost at that point is a point of departure to be yeah. curious. Yeah. So it's there might be that moment to ask the question, you know, uh, in a spontaneous way, but I think those questions of care and concern 
and true curiosity about the experience of the other person you're interacting with starts much further. And indeed, I think those people who have habits of thinking and operating in the world that way begin to build a muscle memory and natural habits that just start to take form when they're in conversations. And I think we can think of examples of those people in our lives, personally or professionally, that it exudes from them a sense of uh, they truly want to know about what we're doing. Mm -hmm. It's not a small talk conversation of how was your weekend and someone then turns in another direction and as you're finishing your answer, they're nowhere to be found. So I think there's something more fundamental about that moment of asking those questions uh, from a sense and a motivation that you truly want to be um, in the boat with the other person to understand them. I think that's such an interesting observation because I do think, and you used this word in our first conversation, that this is about interactions being transactional, as if they're a commodity that the interaction doesn't have value or in and of itself, but it's but it's looking for value that's located someplace else. But what I hear in this is that by coming at a conversation with care, we put value in the moment itself. And it, it seems almost a human response then, a kind of vulnerability on both sides, maybe. Right. And I can't put my finger on a scientific answer, but I think we know it when we feel it. Yes. When the yes. guard when the guard is down between a conversation of two folks who are um, talking about it may be a, an easy topic or it may be a challenging subject, yeah. and perhaps more in the challenging subject, we may have a better sense of that palpable feeling, where uh, it feels like that person is putting them whole their whole selves out there or laying it all on the table. Uh, when we do that more and more regularly and we in- interact with those uh, that kind of a mindset, I think that starts to define the relationships we have in different ways. And I, I'm not here to say every relationship needs to go to that deep, vulnerable place. But, but I think that the benefit of trusted relationships that operate in that all out, I'm putting my full self on the table when I'm having that conversation with you and you can feel it and it's reciprocal. Mm-hmm. Those are the times and I think those are also the people that we would seek when we are in a challenging situation. Mm-hmm. We hold that trust bank, if you will, for those times where it will go off the rails. But I know that I have a safe and secure place that I can go to admit my failure and mistake, um, take a hard look at what the what the real facts are, and hopefully engage in a collaborative uh, solution that gets it back to where it needs to go. Yeah. Well, when we were contemplating coming back together for this conversation, you mentioned a trust equation, which sounds like what you're describing now. So walk us through this trust equation. I thought it was such an interesting way to think about this question. Sure. It's it's a fairly straightforward concept that I have adopted from a set of insights and research that um, very smart people have devoted their careers to. And it's taken the form of some books and workshops that I've had a chance to uh, to be exposed to and apply in the world that I've operated in. Uh, it's called Trusted Advisor. Uh, mm. Charlie Green and then Andrea Howe are two people that I would want to name here because they've been very influential for so many people mm-hmm. at every level of an organization, from senior executives to early managers. 
And I'm extracting this concept of the trust equation because I think it it makes us think a little bit more about when we have those very deep trusted relationships, not just uh, leaving or being satisfied with saying, I know it when I have it, but being more conscious about what's actually happening in that relationship yeah. so that I can take advantage uh, mutually with the other person of the benefits that we enjoy from deep mm, trust yeah. in those relationships. The, the quick takeaway on the trust equation is there's elements that can build trust uh, like credibility and reliability. Those are pretty quantifiable, yeah. Right, yeah. yes. Yeah. They are in that discrete category that we can, in some ways, measure and see and touch. Uh-huh. And credibility is the the words, our experiences. Uh, it might be the degrees that hang on our wall or the kind of uh, credentials we bring to any one of our you know professional roles. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so we can trust people in a way to uh, look at those things and say, I think they would be credible on that topic if I ask them a question. The words I get back should be trustworthy. Sort of the resume list. Right. Yeah. yeah. Reliability, same way, uh, in, the, in the way that you can really see and measure it. It's the ability for someone to follow through on what they say they're going to do and they'll do it. And we rely, reliability, we rely on those people. And uh, there's a high correlation between you know, highly reliable people with the people that we trust too. Right. When you put credibility and reliability together, you have uh, you have a pretty strong starting point for trust. The flip side, though, is that there are other elements we tend not to take advantage of. Mm-hmm. But if we really think about our most trusted relationships, they can fall into the other drivers of trust, which is um, a high degree. And this is by intention, I think, a provocative word that the researchers chose: intimacy. Mm. Intimacy means that there is uh, discretion, there's safety, mm-hmm. there's the chance to take risk. Mm, right. uh, we'll explore that, I'm sure, a little bit later. Uh, but that intimacy in the relationship, it can be harder to quantify, uh, but it tends to be those the one of the hallmarks of the relationships when we hold our most dear um, relationships and colleagues um, in any setting, it, it usually has something to do with a level of safety and discretion. It's sort of the intangible variable. The, the other two are pretty quantifiable, but this one, intimacy, is more, you know it when you feel it. Right. And I do think it is a uh, one of those harder to quantify. If From a, a more scientific um, or empirical perspective, uh-huh. uh, that can be hard. Although when I ask the question in, in the discussions around intimacy, uh, what are the safe relationships you would go to in a you know, in a swirling storm, who would you go to? If, if without thinking too hard, people can usually name one or two people. Uh-huh. These are these are unique relationships. We don't necessarily have deep intimacy in the way we're talking about here with um, scores of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, might be a few. Right. Uh, but when we unpack what makes that relationship safe to go to in that storm, it has a lot to do with the words we were just using to describe intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. The last I'll add here is to round out the trust equation is tied to a, a earlier point we made here, which is where's the motive coming from when we're interacting with that mm-hmm. with the other person? That's a huge that's a huge factor because it makes the elements so explicit. It has such an impact on the other variables. So the trust equation then is capability plus reliability plus intimacy divided by that motivation. Is that right? 
right? In the in the research, it's called self orientation. Uh, okay, and it does uh, relate to where the focus is or the motive yeah. is coming from. Uh-huh. When when uh, when we as individuals have a high self orientation, it it means that our motives, our agenda, uh, in some ways, our ego is is the front and center primary focus. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to our earlier conversation when when a question is asked that is clearly the motive of the other person who's asking it, that they need that information. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tend to be cut out of the equation while we're thinking about equations. And so that we would call a high self-orientation. Uh, and in the math, uh, in the mathematical equation you just described, because it's on uh, you know, the, the denominator, as that goes higher, we drive trust down. And it mm-hmm. starts to cancel out some of the other things mathematically and metaphorically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Things like the intimacy, uh, credibility, reliability. So interesting. Because I also think back to Stephen Covey, who's famous in the business world for his Speed of Trust book. And one of those things that he says is the first job of any leader is to build trust. I think of that in this equation and how we often think of leadership in terms of those interests, of whose interest is being served. So do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think... I think you're on to uh, an important theme of leadership and trust here. When we flip it back to what we started on, uh, which is in service of the other, uh, we are on the path to tight bonds of trust on the team, uh, empowering the employees or the members of the team to really be the engine that drives it somewhere. And that feels like a very, you know, different course as as uh, as compared to the one where the leader is the the strong figurehead and in control. Yeah, yeah. And as I was looking forward to this conversation, I found myself thinking about the cyclical nature of all of this, that you need curiosity to build trust. And with that trust, you build more curiosity. And I wonder if that resonates for you or how you think about that. Somehow it goes to that intimacy question, I guess. I think so. In the way we've been describing intimacy here and in a broader sense, if we can create that level of safety and security mm. on our teams, and maybe you know, that might be a synonym for the way we are, we're thinking about intimacy, when we create that in an environment of a team that comes together to solve a, a big problem or a, a support a very um, important organizational mission, I think we start to create conditions that help people take risks, um, experiment, feel a part or belong to something like a team. And, you know, if I think about teams and companies that have done extraordinary things, they've usually been in settings where people have been allowed to fail, experiment, propose huge, audacious goals that sounded, you know, crazy at the time. So the idea of psychological safety on a team the way the leader decides to model and set the tone for that and the way team members talk to one another, uh, I think is a huge component here that's linking all of these ideas together around trust and safety and ultimately ourselves feeling confident, uh, like we're making a contribution that's really important. You know, I like to say that these shows are conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. And we've been talking in the work context, but I've been listening to you and thinking that this is a great relationship advice, period. 
I'm nodding my head. I We're on radio, so I forgot to say <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm tracking with you there because relationships are relationships. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Everything that we've just talked about can can carry into, and this is where I'm out of my I'm out of my depth <laughs> about talking about how to. Uh, fix or solve relationships more generally. But I do think these principles are are pretty widely applicable. Yeah, I think so. And this sort of anticipates my last question. Now that you've done this twice, I'm curious what you find yourself doing or thinking differently, perhaps, having visited not just once, but twice this question, what it means to choose to be curious. I think for me, it has to do with the pace. Mm. Curiosity may well come up in the moment in an impromptu uh, thought that springs into our our head at any given time. And I may want to follow that, you know, jumping on that train and, and seeing where it goes. But just as often, if not more, I think my awareness of what it looks like to slow down, <laughs> uh-huh. be observant, uh-huh. and I, you know, I I listened to the original uh, show, and then it was in some of the some of the summary leading up to uh, this show around just noticing five things: listening, yeah. seeing, <laughs> Isn't that feeling, uh, and it's no surprise that I think companies and organizations are leaning into the mindfulness mm-hmm. um, space mm-hmm. because. That slowing down has a potential to be a huge advantage to unlocking, uh, you know, each of us as employees, our ability to make a contribution um, and to open up new ideas that we would easily pass by. So I think the the journey of my own curiosity since last we talked on the air here has been about one of appreciating slowness for what's there. Uh, and and the possibility that exists. And even if the million-dollar idea or something that would uh, completely shift my thinking doesn't open up in that moment of slowness, uh, there's a lot of other benefits there because I I know my presence in front of others when I'm slowing down and focusing on them. I'm really mindful of that and highly aware. Um, That has benefits that is contagious, I think, too. We would all benefit from slowing down anymore and trying to figure out what what might be in the thing that we were just about to speed past. Oh, nice. Nice. I'm so glad to hear that. So I'm going to give you a chance to slow down with your big jar of wannabe analogies. You ready? It stared at me all this whole conversation. (laughs) and. Here you go. Like I said, coming into the show, I had beginner's luck, I think. You were very kind with my first go at the jar. (laughs) Okay. But it makes me feel better that you always have to do it, too. So you never leave anyone (laughs) out there. No. You want to go first or you want me to do it? Uh, I'll go. Okay. All right. This is the first. You're the first person to go first. So what's your word and what's the analogy to curiosity? I'm going to read it slowly so I have time to think (laughs) while I'm reading it out loud. Farmer's market. Ah. Mm. Hmm. I think a farmer's market is like curiosity because just like in our lives, there are seasons of things that we might expect to see, but some of the most interesting and fulfilling things are the surprises. Oh, yeah. 
at a farmer's market. It might be the first fruit or vegetable of the next season, but our ability to be curious and not necessarily expect what to see, but to be open at a farmer's market. And I loved your show, by the way, on the farmer's market. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. You should go back and listen to that. If you're listening now and you don't know what we're talking about, go and listen to that one next. Uh, I think it's about the element of, of surprise uh, that comes with being open uh, to what the next season might bring. How poetically appropriate. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. What All about right. you? So mine is... Abacus. How is curiosity like an abacus? <laughs> well, um, an abacus is a way of establishing relationships between things and and grouping ideas, those things, and moving them from one place to another, adding things up. and And curiosity is the same thing. It it allows us to move things along and group them in ways for which we create meaning. Um, so that's how curiosity is like an abacus. Well done. <laughs> I don't know. And audience, how is curiosity like doing push-ups? I don't know. Let us know. <laughs> well, Scott, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Like I said, I'm humbled and flattered to be invited back. And if I hadn't said it earlier, congratulations. Your your year of exploring this has turned up so many interesting insights. Oh, thank you. You are a wonderful host. You found a calling that you might not have started down the road to even discover. And that's ironic or metaphorical. I'm not sure what the right term is, but <laughs> it's appropriate and fitting that you are finding your way on this path and going into an exciting year ahead that I'm excited to follow as well. Oh, thank you. I I will say that I do feel as if I'm walking my talk, which is which is fun. And thank you all. You're listening to WERALP 96.7 FM, Radio Arlington. If you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of our other programs, you can find us online at WERA.FM, streaming and on demand. Follow us on Facebook. Check us out on Twitter. I'll choose to be curious. Don't forget to give us your push-ups analogy, hashtag analogy. And I hope you'll join me next time when writer and author and good college friend of mine, Laura McBride, joins us to talk about curiosity and writing fiction. Thank you for coming along on this journey to figure out what curiosity is like. Fingerprints are like curiosity in that each person's is unique. Curiosity is like crayons. Peanut butter. Knife. Popsicle. Jellyfish. Oh. <laughs> that was Come. Choose to be curious. Wednesday mornings at 10. Okay.